Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain, where each episode we'll sit down with entrepreneurs, investors, and industry veterans to discuss innovation, technology, and the most exciting opportunities in trucking and logistics as we build the future of supply chain together. Be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Senkar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future of Supply Chain podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar, and joining me today is Sean Coakley, Chief Commercial Officer at Capstone Logistics. Welcome, Sean. Hey, thanks, Santosh. Always happy to talk logistics with a fellow Chattanoogan. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'd, I'd love to kind of kick it right off here and, and would love to give our listeners the, the overview of Capstone. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, so... For those who aren't familiar, Capstone Logistics, we're a billion-dollar asset light integrated logistics service provider. So we are actually the largest warehouse services company in the country. We operate today about uh, a little over 560 facilities across the U.S. and Canada. We provide freight management and last mile dis- distribution services as well to many of those same customers uh, through a broad range of transportation management services. And I know Capstone, for many people who may not know the Capstone brand, but you may know some of the acquisitions we've done over the years. For instance, load delivered and logistical labs on the freight management side, as well as Priority Express and Mile Zero for last mile distribution. And with that, I I believe you also have a a pretty distributed footprint. So I I know the load delivered guys up in Chicago, uh, corporate HQs in Atlanta, are there any other kind of key um, kind of focal areas as, as you look across the country that you have a major yep. presence in? Yeah, we, we have exactly right. Headquarters is in Atlanta, Metro Atlanta. Uh, freight management is based out of Chicago. Our final mile uh, operations are based out of Philadelphia. And our last mile technology organization is based out of Seattle. Got it. Very cool. And, and kind of what's the Sean Coakley story? How did you get into this industry? Well, I suppose like many of us in this industry, my path was, was generally circuitous to get to this point. Given its prominence in supply chain management education, I suppose the initial seeds were planted during my time at Michigan State. But I'd say really my, my logistics career kicked off or, or picked up steam back in the early 2000s when I took a job with Rider Supply Chain. You know, that's where I really was able to dig in and get involved in some complex logistics networks and really became fascinated by by how supply chain management is so multifunctional and and the uniqueness of this profession uh, in that it, it pulls together finance, technology, operations, design, sales planning, et cetera. You know, and, and, and that's where I got really excited about this, uh, this industry and, and why I've made it my career now for, for more than I'd like to mention. <laughs> and in, in your current role as, as a chief commercial officer, you know, for our listeners, and I know startup founders tend to ask, like, what, what is your charge? What are you responsible for uh, in that role at, at Capstone? Yeah, so, you know, just... For point of reference, right, and a little background for the audience, I am relatively new to Capstone. I actually 
became the chief commercial officer and, and Capstone's first chief commercial officer in May of this year. And my primary focus is, is growth, right? It both strategically and tactically. Uh, so strategically through uh, working with the leadership team on, on M&A and, and business development activities, and then tactically through uh, the leadership of the sales and marketing activities across all divisions. And kind of with that, like how does uh, incorporating like a startup's product or, or solution into kind of this multidisciplinary effort practically work? Because uh, I'd presume at, at some point uh, you would have the, the ability to, to influence that or make a determination as to what's sensible and what's not. Absolutely. I mean, we are consistently work looking at the industry and across the market to see, you know, what new solutions are out there that we should either be replicating or partnering with um, or just educating ourselves on. So we frequently, uh, from a leadership team at Capstone, have conversations with startups or early ventures. And, you know, from a from a matter of working with us, it's I think what startups and, and newer companies need to understand is you know, we look at it from a, a risk reward perspective. You know, what is it our customers value? And understanding that our relationship with our customers is our primary currency, right? So anybody, anytime we're looking at bringing in a new partner to work with that customer base, it's all about what added value can that partner bring to overcome the risk that we may put on the relationship with the customer. Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly evaluating uh, new partners or startups on, on a few different areas, right? One is their operational understanding. Do they understand our priorities and how we look at our customers and understanding that, you know, consistent, effective execution for our customers is what, why our customers trust us and why they continue to buy from us. And therefore, you know, we're not willing to do anything that would put that relationship at risk. So partners who understand that and understand that they need to be operationally sophisticated and knowledgeable when they come in and, and talk about their solution with us is, is really the first step. And then the second one is when we work with startups is will their commercial model or does their commercial model align with our culture and with our mo the models that we prefer to utilize with our customer base. So one of the unique aspects uh, of Capstone is, is we're strong believers in pay for performance commercial models. So very transaction-based, right? We, we want to get paid for excellent performance, and we will take on the risk and responsibility for delivering that performance for our partners, for our customers. And therefore, we expect anyone we work with to, to be able to work within those confines of a, of a commercial structure. So again, we look for those partners that understand that culture of ours, understand that that's our preferred model and therefore can tailor their own models and their own commercial models to align with that, with a similar methodology. Mm, that, that, that certainly makes sense. And kind of from, from the vantage point of, of a 3PL, you just outlined a, a couple of things you look for as you engage with a, a startup 
as you design a solution or looking to incorporate that into a way of, of servicing one of your customers. But kind of like broad strokes, taking a step back, uh, how do 3PLs um, think about buying technology? Because now you're able to kind of look across several different organizations that you've led and, and are able to provide some of that perspective. Are there certain things that they certainly look for? Are there other attributes that are kind of one-off, very company dependent? Yeah, good, good question. And what I would tell you, Santosh, is, is for all the 3PLs that I've worked with over the years, you know, the, the conversation of build versus buy is frequently discussed. And so while evaluating technology, all 3PLs have to have to have the internal discussion about you know, what is their value proposition? How, and how do we want to differentiate ourselves in the market? And where do we want to spend our, our limited capital and resources? So you have to understand, you know, really, whoever you're work, whichever 3PL you're talking to, you know, what is their priority with, on that matrix? And do they see themselves, you know, I know several, right, who see themselves as they want to be the best operators of best-in-breed, off-the-shelf technology, whereas there's others, right, who want to be, want to have a unique service offering. Therefore, they want to develop their own applications in order to differentiate themselves in the market. So you really have to understand where the 3PL is on that that spectrum and, and how they see themselves competing in the market. And so, you know, depending on, on where they are 10 years ago, right, you know, it was pretty, it was a pretty much a cut and dry decision for most. Uh, but since then, um, and, and the reason I say that is 10 years ago, you know, the off the shelf best in breed technologies, there was, a, there was a more limited offering and you knew that you knew what the best solutions were. Uh, since then, obviously, with the proliferation of tools and solutions out there, it's, it's much more difficult to say what is a best of breed. Therefore, 3PLs are constantly having to evaluate, uh, you know, what is it that they should use? How do they partner? Uh, what are their relationships with others within the industry? And, and if they want to continue to be seen as leaders in their space, it has become imperative for them to either partner with a broader range of suppliers or, or technology company, company developers, or to move themselves more quickly into a development organization and start creating their own applications. And you know, obviously that provides a whole nother level of challenge for, for those companies, because essentially now you have to be operating like an IT company and not just an operating logistics company. So, you know, from a capstone perspective, that's why we go out and, and we're not afraid to acquire technology companies because that helps shape our uh, culture towards being a development organization and helps us develop uh, unique differentiated tools. But at the same time, uh, you know, always constantly looking for new partners to make sure we have a, a full breadth of solutions. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like it's, it's increasingly, you have to do a little bit of both in, in order to maintain a, a pole position in, in the industry. Absolutely true. And, and even if you, 
you know, you, you think you want to be the expert at operating one particular tool uh, or one particular, say, WMS solution, the odds that your customers these days are going to utilize that particular solution the same way are, are relatively minimal. <laughs> so in this day and age, you need to you need to wear a lot of hats. You need to be more flexible and agile in your technology acquisition and utilization strategy than, than we've ever had to be uh, before. So, so we touched on, on two interesting things. Uh, the, the first is kind of a, a couple of the attributes you look for when um, looking at engaging with startups. The second is kind of just the, the mindset when approaching technology decisions, build versus buy. Um, and kind of the, this third as a 3PL is when you have a customer sitting there in the mix, right? And the, the dynamic may or may not be, be different, but we've seen kind of some of this as like our own portfolio companies in robotics or transportation software ends up with a shipper who brings their 3PL in or a 3PL who brings some of their shipper customers into the equation, kind of how do the dynamics get adjusted there what what should be people uh or what should people be mindful of rather when when that happens yeah and if somebody masters this dynamic please give me a call because uh, <laughs> you, you can make make a lot of money now really you know what startups and and any new service provider should be should walk into that environment asking themselves several questions, right? Who's the decision maker? Who is it that's bringing you to the table? What are their priorities? What are their, what are the commercial models involved here? So, you know, I always, when in doubt in a 3PL shipper relationship, you can generally assume the shipper has the quote unquote power in the relationship and, and therefore has the decision-making responsibility. Now that's a general statement in that I'm I'm assuming I'm sort of talking about a con dedicated contract logistics type model. Once you get to multi-client or e-commerce distribution or or any type of shared model, then generally that decision making tends to shift more or shift back towards the third 3PL. But if it's a dedicated operation, the shippers are generally going to make that decision and they're going to make it based upon what's the added value that's going to be provided. And that value is generally decided around what is going to be the cost savings and or what is going to be the additional service value add. Can you increase velocity through a, through a facility? Can you um, execute more loads or shipments? Can you optimize a greater number of modes in a, within a TMS? So, you know, that's where, a partner or a, a supplier really needs to understand that dynamic between the 3PL and the shipper, who has the commercial control to make the decision and how is it going to impact their relationship, you know, if, if you come on board. And are there questions that startup founders should be asking when, when put in such a situation in, in order to gain a better understanding of that dynamic? Really around those those key areas, right, is is what is the commercial model between the, the shipper and the 3PL? Who is the decision maker? How is the user 
of the tool or the solution going to be the 3PL or is it primarily, is the primary end user going to be the shipper? Um, you know, because the 3PL is going, is generally going to be most concerned over how to optimize their current operation and meet their SLAs for that partner. And so they're going to be concerned about how does your solution help improve improve their ability to deliver mm. on that uh, contract versus a shipper may be looking at it a little more long-term, right? Because you got to always take into account the average 3PL shipper contract term is three years. Yep. So you have to take into account, right? So, so if it's a CapEx investment, how long is, what is the ROI on that investment? And it, will it be within that three-year period? Uh, Will the 3PL be able to show added value quickly uh, or fast enough so that they can make their way through the next renewal with the customer, right? So, you know, again, understanding that commercial relationship will help you position your solution and craft your own commercial structure to ensure you're meeting the needs of both parties in the buying, uh, within that buying decision. Yep. Yep. No, that, that certainly makes sense. And and oftentimes you might need to ask questions that might be uncomfortable to ask, but it actually promotes a more transparent and open environment between all parties involved then at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I would say my experience, Santosh, is that many, especially startups, newer companies are afraid to ask those hard questions. Um, they're looking to come in and they just want to be able to demonstrate the value of their product. They want to get to, you know, get to a demo. Um, they want to be able to craft a case study for their solution. And so they're, they're anxious to, to get started. Uh, whereas a three PLs by nature are, tend to be very cautious. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to be methodical about doing the analysis. And therefore the, the startup needs to be methodical in your own analysis to help position the solution in a way that guarantees you a longer term relationship and not just a short term demo. Yep. Yep. That, 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 that's spot on. I think with what we observe, uh, day in, day out here, I'd, I'd be curious, you know, you, you, uh, mentioned before, like the importance of being creative as, as you're pulling these types of engagements together. What's the most creative, uh, deal structure either you've observed or, or, or been a part of? pulling together? I think anytime a company can craft a, a commercial model that truly meets the needs of a customer where the cust without and still at the same time being able to produce financial results that, that the provider needs, I think it is a great example. And maybe that, be, that may be obvious, right? But for instance, the whole pay for performance model in warehouse services is, you know, customers love that model because it's all about, I'm only going to pay you for the work you perform. And by the way, if it, the, the harder you work, the more efficiently you work, the more you will make as a 3PL. And, but they have, but you're satisfying the needs of the customer, which is understanding the true cost at a variable level to, to perform whatever the service is, right? Whatever yeah. warehouse activity it is. 
And so again, it's it's very useful for the customer. It's it's loved by the customers, but at the same time, it gives us as a service provider opportunities to generate higher returns if and when we become uh, more efficient. Yeah. So anytime you can variableize your costs in, in your commercial structures, uh, for instance, when when the robotics companies went to you know robot as a service, uh, I mean that that was fantastic. That was brilliant. Once once people were able to figure that model out, where a customer could can just essentially rent uh, on a, almost a SaaS basis, that made the whole con- that flipped the whole conversation around capex and long term investments on its head, and frankly you know, turn the tide for many of our customers when contemplating whether they should uh, test out or make investments in robotics. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I certainly agree with that. We've, we've seen that firsthand in the portfolio where over the last couple of years, there've been more customers coming forth, embracing that uh, kind of RAS model and, and realizing that it's actually to their benefit and uh, departing from kind of the old uh, capex heavy, and then kind of maintenance and license fees that that, that trail with it. Uh, Absolutely. So I, you know, I'd be curious, Sean. Uh, looking ahead, next five, ten years, where are there opportunities in and around supply chain? Because I, I know the listeners on on the line will certainly appreciate <laughs> your your insights here. Well, they better all take it with a really big grain of salt because. Uh, you know, certainly don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, I, obviously the last five years in our industry has seen dramatic change. And, you know, I certainly don't see that slowing down at all over the next five to 10. There's going to be a lot of areas that go through significant disruption uh, within our industry, different segments of the industry, you know, and at a tactical level, I would say, you know, Activities such as the standardization and digitization of logistics paperwork, I think is going to be a key aspect. It's, it's a very mundane topic, but it's one that as, as more companies dig into the flow of product, uh, people are seeing that there is just so much either redundancy or waste in the process and the, the ramifications of that, of that waste uh, go way beyond just the passing of a piece of paper from one desk to another. So, you know, at a broader level, I really think the the environmental impacts of logistics are going to be looked at with a with a completely different eye over the next five to ten years as, as consumers become more aware of the of the of the environmental impact of things such as reverse logistics transfer methods, packaging wastes, et cetera, you know, that's going to force shippers and then, of course, service providers to take a closer look at existing processes, existing methods and modes, and, you know, get creative on how do we solve these challenges and start reducing the overall environmental footprint of the logistics industry. Yeah, well... Founders, if, if if you've kind of taken that in and, and and you're working on any of that, certainly give us a shout here. You you know how to get to us. <laughs> but with that, uh, I I'd be curious. I'd I'd love kind of your your quick rapid fire take here 
on on some current events uh, in our industry, Sean. Just as long as you're not going to ask me about the election. <laughs> no, no, we'll uh, save that for uh, NPR or, or whatever everyone's <laughs> favorite uh, journalism outlet is. Uh, but first up here is uh, Koopa's uh, purchase of Llamasoft for $1.5 billion. Yeah, to me, that was an interesting one, right? In, in that, you know, hey, if the integration, if a, the integration of procurement systems with more inventory management and supply chain design tools can help shippers focus more on value creation and less on pure cost cutting, then I say, great, go for it. Um, I'm, I'm op- very optimistic. Uh, the cynic in me, you know, says, I, I just hope they allow Lamasoft to continue to, to maintain and retain their entrepreneurial culture because it's, it's a great organization. It's been a great set of tools and leaders in the industry. And I'd hate to see that change as part of a larger bureaucracy. Up next, Akado making uh, the purchase of two robotics companies for nearly $300 million. Yeah. You know, for me, this is, uh, you know, is an early stage of consolidation, really, in the robotics industry. One of the things we've seen is that, you know, there's, there's such a variety of material handling methods within typical DCs that, you know, being able to have a one single company that can help you with all those methods is certainly a benefit. So this doesn't surprise me at all. And honestly, I think it's something that will continue to happen uh, as, as the large organizations acquire different methods, uh, different, different types of robotics, so they have a more complete solution. And lastly here, uh, Pfizer uh, making the decision to distribute uh, their newly announced vaccine on their own and not with the help of the U.S. government. Yeah, you know, that one as well, not that surprising, right? I mean, like everybody, I'm certainly excited by the the Pfizer vaccine news and, and but the supply chain professional in me immediately looks at all of the challenges with distributing that product. And, you know, I can certainly see from a pure supply chain design perspective, right? The faster go-to-market capabilities, if if they're doing it themselves, makes a lot of sense. And certainly the the storage of at ultra low temperatures and the fact that it's a two-dose vaccine add additional complications there that probably certainly makes sense. Pfizer to, uh, to to attempt to manage it themselves, but I don't think anybody should um, should assume this is going to be an easy process because it is certainly a complicated solution, and they're going to need a lot of help uh, executing it in the United States, let alone worldwide, for all of us to be able to get that. Now, now McKesson, who's a top-notch operator and certainly an expert in this industry, they're certainly not going to be sitting around, they're still going to have to supply most of the supply, a lot of the supplies Mm -hmm. uh, in order to provide that vaccine. So, you know, Hey, it's, it's, we're going to need as many parties involved in this process as possible. If we're going to pull it off as a, as a country and as a global organization. So, Hey, more the merrier and, and I wish them all the best. Awesome. With that, Sean, it was great having you on here. Uh, I think it was a great episode and uh, look forward to seeing you around town. 
Hey, thanks for the opportunity, Santosh. I certainly enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.